The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Finding Happy. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 24. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This is the word of the Lord. We are three weeks deep into uh, a new series that we've been doing called Finding Happy. Now, typically we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, um, and we've done that for the past years. Well, actually, all, the last four and a half years, but uh, we've been in the book of Mark for the past, oh, just over 15 months, and now we're doing a few short series until we jump into the book of Exodus coming this fall that we are getting really excited about. And this series on finding happy, it's something that's been on my heart. It's been in my counseling sessions, in my missional community, and different when I'm talking with my staff. Um, a lot of these questions that we're asking have been kind of been raised, and I felt like I needed to address them as a pastor. And so that's why we're doing this series. The first week, um, we answered the question, does God want us to be happy? There's many people that would say no. And we, sh- we show, I th- think, think we, should, we did a pretty good job of showing through scripture that yes, God indeed does want us to be happy. You can find that online or listen to the podcast if you want to. Last week, Jeff answered the question, does or is God happy? Right? Is God happy? And that answer was yes. Okay? And today, I'm going to attempt uh, to answer the question for us, is happiness and holiness at odds with one another? Another way to say that is, will pursuing holiness make us happy? Right? Many of us have grown up with this separation between holiness and happiness. But in order, and we'll talk about that, but in order to do that, I'm going to kind of do a quick review from last week and then jump off where Jeff left off. Last week, Jeff said, God is happy because one, he is what he's, what it's called the Trinity. So in himself is a happy community. I know it's hard to understand. God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit, three persons in one essence, all of them God, one God, okay? In himself, he's a happy community. Now listen, one theologian calls this, the Trinity, the happy land of the Trinity. That's what he calls it. Why? Because the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the Spirit is the love that goes between them. They both defer to one another. You first, no, you first, no, you first, no, you first. They love and serve one another as a happy community. Think of 1 Corinthians 13, Right? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is just. Love does not. But all of the, every day, all day. That's what it's like to live in the Trinity. First Corinthians 13, all day, every day. It's the happy land of the Trinity. And so, of course, God is happy because God is a Trinity. Now, secondly, Jeff said that God is happy because he is sovereign. And that means his plans never fail. Right? Scripture says he is in heaven and does all that he pleases. Now, think about that. If you can do everything that pleases you, how would that make you feel, right? He's in heaven. He does whatever pleases him, whatever makes him happy. He can do anything he wants to do anytime, all the time, every day. He's happy because he's sovereign, right? But I'd like to add one to the list. That's where Jeff left off last week. I'd like to add one to the list from there. God is happy because God is holy. Now, Isaiah 6.3, we sang it this morning. Isaiah 6.3 says, holy, 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 right? They're just not wasting words there. He's holy, holy, holy is the Lord 
of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, does that one kind of confuse you? He's holy because he's holy. He's happy. Have you ever thought that God's holiness would be proof of his happiness? See, I know I wouldn't. I, I think most of us have a rather negative view of holiness. We think of holiness as cold, as boring, as legalistic, as joyless, and frankly, grumpy. But God is none of those things. So what does it mean, or what does Scripture mean, or what do we mean when we say that God is holy? Listen how John Piper describes holiness. God is holy means that God is in a class of perfection and greatness and value by himself. He is incomparable. His holiness is what he is as God, which no one else is or ever will be, and it signifies his intrinsic infinite worth. Now, there's a lot going on there that I want to unpack. Think, this is what he's basically saying. God stands alone on the top of the eternal podium. He is in a class of perfection and greatness and value all by himself. The Grand Canyon looks at God and goes, whoa. The planet's that we stare at and we're amazed by, and the galaxies look at God and go, holy, holy, holy. God is alone on the top of the podium. He alone is absolutely perfect. He alone is absolutely, infinitely valuable in and of himself. There is no one like him. This means that he's the most glorious, most beautiful, most valuable being in and of himself in existence. Therefore, God's holiness proves his happiness. Not just kind of happy, but the happiest person in existence. No one is as happy as God. He's the source of all value, of all worth, of all beauty, in and of himself. He never looks at anything and goes, I'd really like to have that. Or that attribute, that's admirable. Wish it was in myself. Everything we look at in the universe that we like, we find value in, we think is beautiful, is supremely so in and of himself. He is the happy spring from which every stream of delight flows. Let me just give you three big words, maybe not too big, but a little kind of. I'm going to get a little nerdy here, okay? Three words talking about the holiness of God that would be good to put in your vocabulary to just expand the gray matter just a little bit when we're thinking about God, okay? First off is this concept or term that theologians call God's immutability. Now, I know you use that today, right? You use that term today. You were tweeting about it. This is what, this is what Louis Burkhoff says about God's immutability. It is that perfection of God by which he is devoid of all change. Not only in his being, but also in his perfections and in his purposes and his promises. God's immutability is his absolute infinite perfection and everything he does is absolutely perfect. This means that God is perfect and therefore happy in his being in everything he does and all that he promises and nothing can stop his happy plans from happening. He's immutable in his happiness. Secondly, God is self-existent. Now, what does that mean? God doesn't need anything. Think about it. We all came from somewhere. None of us created ourselves. None of us wrote down the day we'd like to be born, right? Delivered to somebody and that just happened on our whim or our command. We came from somewhere. God didn't. God always was. God has no beginning. He is the uncreated creator and therefore everything that is comes from him. 
We all need food. We need water. We need air. We need love. We need community. We need things from outside of ourselves. We need money. We need things from outside of ourselves to exist. God needs nothing. He doesn't even need time. He needs nothing. He's completely self-existent. That means he doesn't need anything from outside of himself to make him happy. Last night, thought it'd be fun, take my son fishing. I got my sermon done. We've had about an hour. It's like, all right, son, we had some, you know, worms in the fridge that mom had thrown behind everything because they're grossing her out. We grabbed those. I gave them to the son. I said, hey, let's go. You got that? You're in charge of that? I'll get everything else. Get out to the, get out to the lake, about 25-minute drive. I said, all right, pull out the worms. I said, no. I set them on the counter to see if they were alive, and I left them there. Now, listen, fishing without worms, fishing without bait isn't as fun, okay? It's just casting and looking at the sunset. That's basically what it is, right? Now, God, what, what, my happiness, I needed something from outside of myself to make me happy, right? We needed the bait to get, didn't happen, right? God never is lacking in anything, He's always happy because he never needs anything. He never forgets anything. He's never lost anything. God is always happy because he's self-existent. He doesn't need anything from outside of himself to make him happy. Now, last thing. So we got um, God's immutability in his holiness, God's self-existence in his holiness, and God's infinite, infinite, infinity in his holiness. Infinity. God always was and always will be. He didn't have a beginning and will not have an end. Therefore, his happiness is an infinite, outside of time, happiness. He was happy. Be, this is a great, you need to understand this. He was happy before he made anything in creation. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit weren't like, oh, if we just had a baby. Right? If we just had something to annoy us, we'd finally be happy. He was happy, and out of his happiness, they created. They made everything that is. He was happy before he made anything in creation, and he will be happy 10 million years into the future. His happiness is infinite, and nobody can change it. Nobody can stop it. Now, let me just say as a side note, this does not mean that God does not get angry. It means at his core, at his, in his being, he's happy. He can still get angry. It, scripture tells us, my, he says this, my anger is for a moment, but my steadfast love and mercy is for everlasting upon everlasting. So absolutely does he get angry, but his anger is for a moment. And it still has an underlying happiness that in and of himself, he's still happy. So here's my point. God is holy. Therefore, God is immutably, infinitely, and internally happy with himself. So from this, and I could go to a hundred scriptures, but I don't have time this morning. We see that holiness and happiness are not at odds with each other. So for us, how does this affect our efforts at finding happy. That's what the series is about. We want you to be happy. God wants you to be happy. God is himself happy. So how does this understanding that holiness and happiness are not at odds with you, how does this affect our efforts at being happy in this world, in this life right now? Well, I see three implications. One, if you desire happiness... You must pursue holiness. If you desire happiness, you must pursue holiness. We were made in the image of a holy, happy God. And therefore, happiness and holiness are intimately connected and ultimately inseparable. If you desire happiness, you've got to pursue holiness. You need holiness to enjoy happiness. Holiness gives us the ability to enjoy God and experience his long eternal happiness. The, the happiness that he shared in the Trinity of himself, he gives, that up, uh, he gives that to us and we can enjoy it, but we can't enjoy that happiness until we are holy. 
Hebrews 12, 4 says this, strive for peace with everyone and for the, and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Did you hear that? If God is the, the bank of happiness in himself, no one can see the bank. No one can see the infinite worth of him unless they possess holiness. To enjoy God, to see God, to be happy in God, we must have holiness. Tony Reinke says this, sin is joy poisoned. We talked about this in the first sermon series that sin is when I pursue happiness and it suicides itself, right? This is going to make me happy and by doing this thing, it actually destroys my own happiness. Sin is joy poisoned, Reinke says. Holiness is joy postponed and pursued. When I'm pursuing holiness, I'm actually pursuing joy. I'm actually pursuing my ultimate happiness. That's the first point. We're going to build off that. First point, if you desire happiness, you must pursue holiness. Secondly, if you desire holiness, you must pursue happiness. Now, this is for all our angry neighbors out there, right? This is for all the deacons that I knew when I grew up with who for some reason drank bitter, they must have drank Folgers before they came to church in the morning. That's all I know. Just suck down the grounds and just look bitter and me. I'm like, is that holiness? Is that what a holy life looks like? Bitter, mean, cold? Slow down, kids. One mint. We need a deacon to sit out there and just smack my kids' hands as they grab mint. Is that holiness? Now, I think if we could believe this, that to pursue holiness is to pursue happiness. That in order, if you want to be holy, you've got to be happy. I think this would revolutionize the way we view everything to do with God. The way we view God himself, the way we read our Bible, the way we go to missional community, the way we practice the rhythms of our life, our day in and day out life. It would change the way we view God and change the way we view, the lo- view life if we believed When God calls us to holiness, he's calling us to happiness. And I can't have holiness without being happy at the same time. If you are a curmudgeon, you are not holy. If you are mean, you are not holy. If you are angry all the time, you are not holy. God wants us to be holy and happy, they're connected. You cannot be holy without being happy. You can't be holy without enjoying God. Enjoying his creation and enjoying his salvation that he's provided for us. Austere, cold, legalistic, boring, technical, joyless obedience is a sin in of itself. To to try to obey God without enjoying God is sin. To try to obey, let me just make it, to try to obey, to technically obey the Ten Commandments without being happy is still sin breaking the commandments. You can't be holy without being happy. But we have a problem here, don't we? Because we don't enjoy God like that most of the time. We have separated holiness and happiness, and we think by pursuing my sin, it will make me happy. And we think holiness is austere and cold, and maybe something from 100 years ago. Anytime somebody says something about holiness, people talk, well, that just sounds puritanical. Do you know what puritanical means? Like, right? like what? We've pushed holiness way back. Like it's no longer required and it's no longer a good thing to pursue. Scripture teaches us and our confession says that we enjoy, we glorify God by enjoying him forever. That means a call to holiness is a call to being happy in God, with God, and for God. 
But we do have a problem here. Why don't we... So if I, if I said this, give me your list, give me your top five things that would make you happy right now. I can guarantee you, none of you would put holiness on that list. Right? Right? All right. Now I think vacation home, losing 20 pounds, Gaining 20 pounds for some of us. Texas sheet cake is up there for me. Somewhere it's in the top five. Right? Finding a spouse. For some of us. Right? Getting married. Having babies. What will make you happy? I think we say, bam, 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 bam. Holiness isn't even on the list. And God says, holiness is what will make us happy. God is holy. God is happy. If we want to be happy, we've got to be holy. Why do we have such negative views of of holiness? Well, this is why I think. This is the third implication. Because sin has damaged us in such a way that we desire happiness, but for some reason, we don't desire holiness. So sin has separated those two concepts, those two things, happiness and holiness. In a, Before we're born, when we're conceived in our mother's womb, sin infected us before we even committed a sin. Holiness and happiness were broken and separated in us. St. Augustine says this, certainly through sin we lost both piety, that's holiness, and happiness. But when we lost happiness, we did not lose the love of it. Interestingly enough, sin destroys our holiness and destroys our happiness, but yet I still desire happiness and yet I don't desire holiness. Even though, here it is, holiness, Randy Alcorn in his book called Happiness, he says this, even though holiness is a deep need of the soul, it's not always a felt need. None of you are sitting at home going, you know what? I just need Justin to talk about holiness today. You know what we're lacking in our marriage? Holiness. You know what we need in our finances? Holiness. You know what we need in our parenting? Holiness. You know why we're not happy? We're not holy enough. I hope Justin preaches holiness today. It's not a felt need. Though it's true, it's a real need because it's connected to your happiness It's not a felt need, which is important because, I'm not going to go on that. That's a whole other thing about felt needs. We still long to be happy, but we don't necessarily necessarily long to be holy. Man has a desire to be happy, is what Thomas Watson says. Man has a desire to be happy, yet opposes that which should promote his happiness. He has a disgust for holiness. How interesting. We have a desire for happiness, and we need holiness to be happy, and yet we have a disgust for holiness. This is what sin has bent in us and has destroyed in us since the fall. But because God is holy and happy, he knows we were created in his image that we will never be happy until we are holy. And he says even in 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy as I am holy. We saw first week, God calls us to be happy, rejoice always, be happy always. He also calls us, be holy as your father is holy. Be holy as God is holy. We're called to be holy and we're called to be happy. Now, so this is the crux of the sermon. How... Do we get happy by getting holy? Or how do we get holy? If holiness is needed for happiness, how do I become holy? And that's a very important question. And listen, it's actually more nuanced biblically than you would typically understand. It's, there's layers to it. And it's going, we're going to have to break it apart in, in a few layers, and we're going to study it. 
And for some of us, we just want to keep it simple. And because we've we just want to keep it simple. We don't understand this call to holiness and how God wants to make us holy and how we're called to live holy and what holiness is meant to do. So it's going to take some thinking this morning and some unpacking, okay? So to do that, I want you to open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians. Now, I don't think I've ever done what I'm about to do, and we're going to skim through this book, and I'm going to give you a survey of the whole book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians was written to a church struggling to connect happiness and holiness, struggling and not living holy lives, okay? And so, in very much, I would say, in a similar way to some of us, to many of us, this church. And we're going to see what Paul has to say to them. 1 Thessalonians. Now, before I do, I want to build out a framework for us. Before we get into this. Now listen, here we go. Here's the big, here's, here's, I know I've already had three points. I've got a whole lot more to come, okay? How do you get holy? This is what I want you to know. Hopefully I've, I've proved the point. God wants you to be holy and happy. These things are connected. Now, how do I get holy? It's not, it's not as simple as you think. And first off, to be holy requires Regeneration. Now, what is regeneration? Please listen. Regeneration, and one, you've probably heard it said like this, you must be born again. Ephesians 2 says this, when you came out of your mother's womb, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Dead. Think cadaver on a table. Think corpse. You are born spiritually lifeless. Now, if I looked at a spiritually lifeless person, I said, man, I just really want you to be happy. Here, here's 10 things to make you happy. What's this guy going to do? Or gal? Nothing. He's dead. She's dead. We came into the world dead in our trespasses and sin, unable to do anything for God, unable to respond to God, unable to do anything that produces any life and any value. But Ephesians 2 tells us, when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, God brought us to new life. God raised the dead, spiritually speaking, and we were regenerated. So any person who has heard the gospel and has responded to the gospel, the only way you have the ability to respond to that gospel is because the Holy Spirit has regenerated you and, and awakened you and allowed you to come out of your spiritual death and to be raised to new life. Now in that, you've been regenerated. Now listen, then there's this term called justification. Now, as you come to new life, guess what? You have guess what? All your past sins are still with you and still on you. The first time you threw that temper tantrum with mama, right, and rebelled from your parental authority, that was a sin that you're that deserves wrath, that deserves punishment from God. You were sinning against your mom and dad, but you were sinning ultimately against God, and that sin deserves punishment. And then every sin since then, we could pile them on, right? So what do you need? You are new. I came alive, but I've got all these sins that I'm going to be judged for. Well, you need justification. And what, Christ, what God does is takes all your sins, all your record of, of wrongs, past, present, and future, and he nails them to the cross, and Christ dies for them there, and you're justified. That's a legal term that says not guilty. All of your sins, so you've been regenerated, brought to new life. All of your sins, you're not guilty for them. On the last day, you will not pay for your sins because Christ paid the punishment for your sins. Now here, most people stop right there. Most people understand you must be born again and I've been forgiven by Christ and then we stop. And because you stop there, you don't understand the call to holiness. These two things, regeneration and justification, happened by God's sovereign decree, by God's sovereign plan, by God's sovereign power, by God's sovereign will. God did these things to you. You didn't do anything except after you came alive, you believed the gospel and turned from your sins. That's all you did. He did all the work underneath it. In one sense, think of this. You are spiritually dead on a table. God takes a new beating heart and he opens you up and he places this new beating heart in you and he zips you up and now you come to life. 
And everything you do from then on is because he worked sovereignly on your behalf. You did not lay on the table and negotiate with God to somehow do this for you. You were dead. Okay? But this brings a lot of confusion. Because here's the reality. I come to faith. I am justified. I've been forgiven. But am I holy? Well, you are imputed. That means he looks at you and he sees the righteousness of Christ. You've been imputed the holiness of God. You've been imputed the righteousness of God. But it's somebody else's holiness. It's Christ's holiness. It's not yours. You are not holy in that moment. You've been deemed holy. You've been imputed holiness. But you're not holy, right? You're, if you remember, when you, if you look back, when you come, came to Christ, you in yourself are not holy. You're full of sin and wickedness. and You're still doing you know, think, deeds of the flesh and awful things. You're not holy. Now, here's the quandary. I'm going to jump something. The end of our salvation, this is the beginning of our salvation. The end of our salvation is called glorification. And this is where God makes us like himself, makes us like his son, and he makes us completely holy so we can enjoy his holiness. We can't enjoy God sinful. It's like trying to go enjoy the sun and taking a spaceship to the sun. It's, I can't wait to enjoy the sun. And you get out of the spaceship and you're incinerated. There's no enjoyment. As sinful humans, we can't enjoy holy, a holy God. We'll be incinerated. And so what does it take to enjoy a holy God? We must be holified. I just made that up. We, we must be holified. We must be made holy in and of ourselves, so we can enjoy the holiness of God. It's like trying to go to Mars. You're not fit to go to Mars. You can't live on Mars. Listen, please hear me. You're not fit when you're first saved. You're not fit for heaven. You couldn't enjoy God if you tried. You couldn't enjoy heaven if you tried. C.S. Lewis has a brilliant kind of an analogy and a story about this, that, that unbelievers, if they were to get to heaven, they couldn't even walk on the grass because the grass is so real, it would pierce through their feet. See, we're not made in our sinfulness. We can't live in heaven with God. It, we can't stand it. We wouldn't be happy there. So in order to get to heaven and enjoy it and be happy, we must be made holy. And ultimately and finally that happens through this process called glorification. But in this life, in this life, on this earth, there's what's called sanctification. And it's the work that needs to be done between my justification and my glorification. And it's this work of living a holy life and being made into the image of God. And I'm going to tell you this, no one will be glorified unless they're sanctified. And if you're justified, you will be sanctified. And if you're sanctified, you will be glorified. There is no justified born-again Christian who continues to live in their sin and think God's okay with it. There's, you can't find it in the Bible. It's been made up by our culture. If you're justified, you'll be sanctified and you'll be glorified. This is salvation, not just born again. That's the beginning of salvation. All of this is salvation. If you want to be glorified, you've got to be justified and you've got to be sanctified. To be holy, Randy Alcorn again, to be holy is to see God as he is and to become like him, covered in Christ's righteousness. And since God's nature is to be happy, the more like him I become in my sanctification, the happier we become. Now, I want to go through 1 Thessalonians and I'm going to show you this. Open up your Bible, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll start with verse 4. We're going to go quick because we have to. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, praise God, love brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has what? Chosen you. How do we know God chose you? Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but, in also, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now, what's he saying here? Listen, I know you've been chosen. I know you've been predestined by God. I know you've been regenerated because when I preached the gospel to you, you didn't just take it, oh yeah, that's cool, that's a good word. No, no, you received it with full conviction and you were changed by it. Fruit was produced, okay? Keep going. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Now, look, this is what I want to say. 
The apostle Paul lived in such a way with the Thessalonians that they could look at him and go, he's holy. He's different. His life looks different from the world. He's saying, you know what kind of life I lived among you. I lived a holy life, a set apart life to God. Okay. Now, Keep reading. And you became what? Imitators of us and of the Lord. He's saying, you, you followed after this life, this holy life that I lived. You followed after it. Now look, for you received the word in much affliction. Look at this. I love this right here. With the joy of the Holy Spirit. In one sentence right there. Joy of the Holy Spirit. Happy, holy, connected. When you receive the Holy Spirit, you receive the happiness and the holiness that comes with him. Now look at verse 9. For they themselves, the report of, of, his, of his people that were checking in on him, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And look, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. He's reporting to them their conversion. They turn from idols. They heard the gospel, they turned from idols, they turned from their sins, and then they begin to live a holy life like the apostle Paul was living among them. Let's go to chapter 2, verse 8. So, being affectionately desirous of you, that's, that's a pastor's language, loving his sheep, he misses them, he longs for them, he, he says, so being affectionately desirous you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you would become very dear to us. And listen, church, I think it's a sin for a pastor to lock himself away in his closet or in his office and never interact with his sheep and ever be in community with his sheep. And I think it's one of the signs of a pastor's downfall is when he's no longer with his people. And Paul says here, you know how I affectionately desired to be with you. I wanted to share with you not just the gospel, but my very own self, my very own life, my holy life dedicated to the Lord. I want to share with you. Paul says, holy men sharing the holy gospel and their holy selves. First chapter 10, or ch I'm sorry, chapter two, verse 10. You are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul saying, you know, I lived holy among you, preaching a holy gospel, and I called you to live holy lives set apart to the Lord. Chapter three, verse 11. Now, May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he, God, may establish your hearts. Look at this. Blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. What's he saying? He's saying, I want you to be set apart. I want you to be holy. I want you to be sanctified so that you can be glorified when Christ comes with his saints. Chapter four, verses one through eight. Finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk, and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Hear that, guys? There's a way to walk. There's a way to live. He's calling them to a new life. Keep going. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Well, what is the will of God? <laughs> For this is the will of God, your sanctification. What's the will of God? For you to be holy. For you to live holy lives. What does that look like? Listen, Paul's saying, I want you to be holy, and therefore then you're going to be happy. Well, how am I going to be holy? Abstain from sexual immorality. That word is pornea. 
any sexual content, connection, observing, watching, participating in anything outside of a heterosexual marriage, man and a woman in marriage, any other sexual content outside of that is immorality. It's how God made us. This is the law that God puts forth for our holiness, for our happiness. If we pursue anything outside of that, we think it will make us happy. And in fact, it will not make us happy. It will end and ruin our long-term happiness. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. He's telling people, the whole culture you're living in worships sex. They think sex is their identity. Sex is the most real thing about them. And he's looking at them and saying, that's not true of you. You've been made new in Christ. You've been regenerated and given new a, heart, a new heart. You've been justified in the sight of God, set free from all the punishment of your future sins, and now live differently. You're not controlled by your sexuality. Your sexuality wants to define you, whether you're heterosexual or you have a homosexual inclination. Your sexuality wants to define you, and it says this, express yourself, do what feels good, and you'll find yourself, and it's a lie. And in a heterosexual relationship, it looks like sex before marriage. It looks like pornography after the marriage. It looks like pursuing adultery after the marriage. It's always more sex. I have a desire for more sex. I'm going to follow that desire, and that's going, to, that's going to make me happy. And it always, always, always ends in, this, in the cutting of the throat of our ultimate happiness because it's disconnected from holiness. In a homosexual inclination, it looks like following my desires. And I have these desires, therefore this must be true about me. And if I follow these desires, then I'll be happy. It's a lie. And our culture pushes the lie. Must control his or her own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we have told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Listen to me. If you're mad at me right now, I am with you, okay? I have... The, the same sin in me, the same sin that's in you, that sin's in me. I have these desires. I'm preaching to myself. I'm not standing up here and saying that I'm holier than you are and I'm somehow above these desires. I'm not saying that at all. This, look, if you're mad at me for what I'm saying, please read this next verse. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. It's not me. I didn't make the rules. If I would have made the rules, that would not be one of them. The Spirit is holy. He puts it in us. How could the Holy Spirit dwell in us without making us holy? How could the Holy Spirit remain in us while we're practicing sin and impurity? No. No. So, five, I've got to go. Chapter 5, verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, salvation, don't think born again. Don't minimize salvation to just justification. Salvation is regeneration, justification, sanctification, glorification. Salvation is all of that. We obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who what? Died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Go to, let's just keep reading. We ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. That admonish, unfortunately, is kind of what I feel like I'm doing right now, is uh, rebuke strongly. That's what that word means. 
and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, brothers, sisters, we, we urge you, admonish the idle. I have a little note there. I go down in my, in my ESV Bible and it says, admonish the disorderly or undisciplined. Do you have any of those in your family? Do you have any of those in your missional community? Do you have any of those in your friend circle, Christians? He says, admonish the idle, admonish the undisciplined. Keep moving. Encourage the faint-hearted. Okay, that's different. Everybody's not, everybody doesn't need to be admonished all the time. Encourage the faint-hearted. Okay. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now. This is Paul's prayer. Now, may the God of peace sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So this is what I want us to see. First off, the only way for anyone to ever become holy is for God to make them holy through regeneration and justification, which happens when the Holy Spirit enables a person to believe the gospel. Secondly, no one will ever be holy and happy without the work of sanctification. Charles Spurgeon says this, holiness is the royal road to happiness. The death of sin is the life of joy. Sanctification takes a lot of work. Listen, sanctification is different from justification. Justification didn't take any of your work. It took all of God's work. Glorification is not going to take any of your work. It's going to be all God's work. Sanctification is different. It begins with God. It can only come out of the new heart you've been given, but it takes your work. And what Thessalonians shows us, it takes a lot of work. It takes other people's work. It takes your work and it takes the Holy Spirit's work or God's work himself. What do I mean? It takes your work. Chapters four, verses one through five, abstain. Bring your lusts under control. Get your body under control. Love one another. What's he doing? He's giving imperatives. He's giving commandments. He's saying, this is what a holy life looks like. It looks like love for one another. And if you're being sexually immoral with someone, you're not loving them. You're actually hurting their long-term happiness as well. 5, 12 through 22, or chapter 5, 12 through 22. What's he saying? Admonish, help encourage, be patient, don't repay evil, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. What's he saying? Work. Sanctification takes your effort. It takes your work. We must try. We must fight our sin. We must work hard. We must learn the word of God. We must pray. We must love our brothers and sisters in the faith and lay our lives down for them. We must love our wife and lay our life down for her. We must love our children and lay our lives down for them. We must make disciples who make disciples and plant churches. We have work to do, and this is a sanctifying work in our hearts that makes us more and more holy like our Lord Jesus. That song we sang today that Joel wrote, make us more like you. Make us more like you. That's what sanctification is. But it takes our effort. It doesn't just happen. Secondly, it takes others' work. Verse 23, I showed you there. Paul is praying for them. Sanctification takes prayer. I want you to know that your pastors pray for you. And every other Monday night, we gather together to pray for all the needs of our church. And we're praying for you. And it takes prayer. And your missional community, hopefully, is praying for you. And your family members are praying for you. Sanctification takes the work of others. It takes people speaking into your life. It takes community. You don't always see your own sin. It takes other people to do that. Sanctification takes other people's work. You can't do it on your own. 
But here's the reality. If our holiness and our sanctification was only up to us and others, we would be pitiable. If our sanctification was only up to us, that means my efforts at reading my Bible, my efforts at praying, my efforts at making myself holy, we would never be happy because we will always struggle with sin. We will always fight the fight of faith. So Paul never, listen, grounds the work of sanctification in only the work of God's people. He never does it. He never says the source of your sanctification is your own strength. The power of your sanctification is you better pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make it happen today. He never grounds the work of sanctification in the work of us. This should give us great confidence. Listen, Paul says, I want you to be blameless on the day. I want you to be glorified on the day. What's this confidence? How can he be confident that's actually going to happen? This is why we believe in eternal security, that no one can lose their salvation. Because if they're justified, they will be sanctified, and then they will be glorified. What's our confidence? What's our surety? Chapter chapter 5, verse 24. I'm going to read 23, actually. Now, may the God of peace himself, himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord, Jesus Christ. That should go, we should, that should cause us to go, I don't know if I can be blameless. I don't know if I can be holy enough. I don't know if I can actually follow your ways and follow your will and, and live this sanctified life. I don't know if I can do it. And what does Paul do? How does he ground it? He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. See, the divine seed from God placed into your heart will produce fruit. But this should scare some of us because I think there's many people in this room room, that you grew up in a religious household, you grew up going to church, and you assume that you're a believer. You've assumed that you've received the word and you have not. And you're living life in your sin and you're happy in your sin and you think you're fine in your sin and you think God's okay with your sin and you've convinced yourself maybe that it's not even, not even sin. And the word of God would say, you are not, either not saved or you're not being sanctified. You're not set apart. You're not living a holy life unto the Lord which the seed of justification produces in our life. It produces it. So you might have confidence that you're a Christian and you should have none. See, when I look at my life, now listen, this is my justification only on what Christ has done. I put my faith in that. But how do I know that's happened? How do I know that? Not because, oh, I think God loves me. Everybody thinks God loves them in our culture today. And he does, and he's opposed to people. He's opposed. He's angry at some because they haven't put their faith in Jesus. How do I know that I'm saved? How do I know? Because I look at my life, I look at my life, not yesterday, not an hour ago. I look back 10 year, 20 years ago when I put my faith in Christ and go, oh my goodness. I am a different man today than I was 20 years ago. Now, I don't notice it. You ask me, am I a different man from yesterday? Mm, I don't know. A week ago? Ah. Uh, So this isn't like navel-gazing every day, wondering, am I sanctified more today than I was yesterday, or am I really justified? No, this is looking back over a long time and saying, is there evidence that the Spirit is making me holy? Is there evidence in my life that I'm different than I was a year ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, five months ago, however it was you put your faith in Christ? If there's not, and if you are okay living a life that's contrary to God's ways, you should have no confidence that you're Saved. Now, does that mean we're not sinning? Absolutely not. But what's, what's my response when I sin? I don't go, no big deal, God loves me. I'm grieved because I'm grieving him. I'm grieved because Christ died for that sin and I'm picking it back up like it's no big deal. And I put my faith in Christ and I turn from my sin in repentance. This is why we repent on Sunday morning every single week. All of us, me included, 
This is why we leave those up. If you've got YouVersion on your phone, you can find this on Facebook or on YouVersion, and you can read these in your devotion. You can read our whole liturgy in your devotion. Some of them are too good just to be wasted on one Sunday. You need to read those during the week. That God is calling us to happiness, but that's a call to holiness, and we can't separate these two things. So as I close, one, you can't be happy without being holy. Two, you can't be holy without being happy. Three, you can't be holy and happy without God justifying you, helping you in and through all of your work of sanctification and glorifying you, making us fit for heaven. You need him to regenerate you. You need him to justify you. You need him to sanctify you and empower you to work hard and fight your sin and live a humble life in community and on mission for the rest of your life, making disciples who make disciples. And you need him to glorify you to make you fit for heaven. Now, what's fascinating and phenomenal to me is all of this is guaranteed through one thing, and that's the good news of the gospel. When we put our faith in Christ and we believe the gospel, that seed comes into us that will produce that holy life. It's going to take a lifetime. It's going to take a lifetime of work, and we're never going to be, will I, am I more holy today than I was 20 years ago? Absolutely. But in justification, I'm deemed holy. In sanctification, I'm working that holiness out and actually becoming more and more and more holy. How? Through the power of the gospel. 1 Timothy 1.11 says this. He calls the gospel the gospel or the good news of the glory of the blessed God. The good news of the glory of the happy God. I can't get my mind around this, that what should make God irate and rip creation to shreds, sin. Instead of doing that, he has this good news of happiness that he's going to redeem us through his son, send his son, made him happy to send his son. It made him happy to kill his son. It made him happy to raise his son to new life. It made him happy to glorify his son. It made him happy to save you. It made him happy to work with you in sanctification. It's going to make him happy to glorify you. This is the good news of the glory of the happy God. And I'm asking you to believe it this morning and fight for it in your daily life. Fight for it. The world is going to look in and see our happiness and our holiness and go, what's up with that? Don't have this cheap happiness that only comes from the world. Have an eternal, transcendent happiness that propels you through pain, that propels you through loss, that propels you through suffering. This is what God offers us in the gospel. It's happiness through holiness. The gospel of the happy God will make us holy, and when we sin against him, we can be reminded of the gospel and we can be forgiven and washed and cleansed and renewed and sent back out on mission for him. Let me pray. Father, your word is truth and your word is life. And many of the things and the problems in our life are a result of being of not knowing your word. We, we thought holiness was austere and cold and boring and legalistic and lacking fun and happiness. And we think happiness and holiness are just two separate things. But it's not true. You are the source of happiness and you are holy in yourself. And we want both of those things today. And Father, we turn from our sin. We want to pursue holiness. We want to pursue happiness. We want to know you, the source of all happiness. We want these things, and you want us to want these things. And it can only happen if the power of the Holy Spirit comes into us and makes us new and then empowers us to live this new life. Would you do that this morning for those who have never put their faith in you? Would you do that this morning? Your word is truth. Your word is life. Our cultural sensibilities will be offended because your word is eternal. 
It's not contextualized to our cultural needs. It's contextualized to the world. So some of it will offend us, provoke us. It should be so because we are not God and you are. Father, and I pray, like you said to the Thessalonians here, no one in this room would go, yeah, get them, and feel like we're walking this holy life right now and we're better than others. This should humble us all. We should be patient with all, you said. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. Would you give us a love for holiness? Would you give us a love for you that's over and above all the lesser things in this world? Do it for your fame and for your glory and for our great happiness. Father, as we come to the table this morning, I'm thankful that you didn't say, if you make yourself holy, you'll get into heaven. You didn't say that. You said, I will do it. I will justify. I will regenerate. I will work in your sanctification. I will glorify. We trust not in our own works. We trust in your work. And we come with open hands and we say, humbly, let me eat the body that was broken for us, the blood that was shed for us, let me take it in and of myself. He gave everything for himself. How could I not give myself back to him? Father, I pray that just gratitude over the good news of the glory of the happy God would overwhelm your people this morning. I pray it in the powerful, glorious, omnipotent name of Jesus Christ. Amen.